was, uh, I was joking with James that, you know, he gave, he gave me an easy one, confession. Uh, and yet, uh, I feel like it is an easy one and a hard one at the same time. So, that's beautiful. So, uh, for the last few weeks, if you're brand new, <clears throat> as I am, you're kind of around. Uh, for the last few weeks, um, the Shore Church has been walking through a series called Finally Alive which is a series that has really explained how God has given Christians a distinct responsibility to relationally, actively, and persistently bring ourselves before God in certain ways. And we've seen that in order to grow our relationship with God, to strengthen our faith with God, that we have as Christians certain responsibilities, things that God has called us to do in the family, right? Every family has certain things you're kind of expected to do, uh, right? Likewise, in God's family, things are expected to do certain disciplines that he has given us. And when we do them, we find God's spirit at work within us and our relationship with God grows in amazing ways. Um, so we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks and we're in that as well today. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about, it's sort of like when someone decides that they want to get really, really muscular, I saw this dude was driving yesterday. I was with my wife. I was like, look at that guy's arms. They're like huge. Like homeboy made a decision. You know what I mean? A long time ago and just kept at it. And, uh, and you may be looking at me and, and you may be wondering like, man, what do you know about gains? Uh, and I'll tell you not a lot. Though I do know that if you want gains, number one is you have to quit eating ice cream and Doritos at midnight while watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Frasier reruns. You know what I mean? That's step one. Uh, step two, uh, you got to actually get in the gym and do work. Uh, that's what I know. Uh, I, I was talking about uh, the gym, that kind of stuff with a buddy of mine recently, and he affectionately has uh, a thing that he says about my arms. He says that they are library arms. <laughs> library arms. I thought at first that could be a good thing. There are some big books. You know what I mean? Like massive books. Uh, but I, I, I quickly realized he was razzing me. Um, so I admittedly don't know a whole lot about the gains in the gym. But luckily, uh, as we're studying spiritual gains, I have a little bit of insight on that. And so, uh, and I'm continuing to grow in that, as all, all of us are. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. These spiritual disciplines that we can walk through throughout our lives so that we can grow in our relationship with God. And so as we've been doing all this summer, we're going to walk walk through these things as, as God, that God has given us. He's prescribed them for us. And as we walk in them, what we'll find, what Christians have found throughout the ages is that our trust and our faith and our hope will just continue to grow day after day after day as we will become mature men and women with an eye towards God's kingdom and a heart that is attuned to his ways. Not only that, but as James has said throughout this series, that really it's God who loves our relationship with him way more than we do, which is a great news. And he loves it so much that he's always at work in our lives to make us holy in our hearts. And so that's our prayer this morning as we open God's word and consider the spiritual discipline of confession, uh, that God would take our time and meet us in it, that, that as we are in the habit of gathering together, that we would be provoked and encouraged to love and to good works, and that we would grow deeply from our time together this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray uh, before we dive in uh, to the spiritual discipline of confession. All right? Great. So let's pray together. So Holy Lord, we, we confess that, that we are riddled with sins. 
God, we are guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find your mind in your word, and we've neglected to seek you in our everyday lives. God, our, our transgressions, our shortcomings, God, they, are, they just present us with a list of accusations. But we praise you that they will not stand against us who have placed our faith and trust upon Jesus, for we know that all has been laid on him. So we pray that we would not be ruled by our passions today, but instead we would be ruled by your grace and that you would rule over us in liberty and in power. We also, God, we also pray specifically for this morning that you would grow, grow us in the spiritual discipline of confession, that as we practice these things, as we learn these things, that we would, during this time today, continue to learn these rhythms of what it means to be your people. Help us, we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, for our first text this morning is actually one that's going to be incredibly familiar to you, whether you uh, walked in this morning and you know nothing about Jesus, or you walked in and you're like, I've been a Christian for 50 years. Uh, you've probably at one time or another heard of uh, this uh, verse. It's two verses. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can open up with me or on your phone, or you can Google it. Or we have Bibles in the back, plethora of options. Uh, but we're going to be in John, book of John, Chapter 3, so large number 3, small verses, 16 and 17. So verses are like little tiny numbers, so 16 and 17. But as you're turning there, I want to lay out on the table for us some things that these verses presuppose before we walk into that and read that together. So that, that way, if it is your very first time here, very first time around Christianity, you're kicking the tires, you don't really know you, God, what's going on, uh, or, you're, or you're perusing, finding out who is Jesus, or if you've been around for a really long time, um, either, wherever you're at, what we see is that we're constantly reminded to remind ourselves of these things as God's people. In fact, an ongoing thing throughout the Bible is remember, 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 because we're prone to forgetting. And so uh, I want to remind us all, and my heart included today, of five things before we walk into John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. So the first is this, that the Bible teaches that there is one God who created all things, and he's triune. I mean, he's the Trinity. He's a three-in-one. It's what we, we sang from a moment ago, that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's one God that has always existed as these three persons. Number two is that he's a personal God who cares about how we live in the world that he has created. He cares about us and he cares about our actions, the things that we do. Thirdly, he requires that we worship him alone as God and that we live according to the way that he has commanded us to live. So he gives laws for our flourishing and there are punishments for rebelling against that. It's like my three and a half year old all the time. He gets in the car and he loves to put, he's at the stage where he loves to put his car seat on like, or plug himself in himself. And he always does like the, the chest click thing. And uh, if it's down here too low, I'll say, hey buddy, the police won't like that. And so he's like, okay. So now every time he gets in, he goes, hey daddy, is the policeman gonna be happy? Uh, right? And he has to do that. Why? It's for his flourishing. Right? There's, there's laws. If I don't have him in his little car seat, uh, we get pulled over. What happens to me? I was like, I either get a really large ticket. I go to jail, something. I don't know. Something bad happens. That's all that I know. And so I'm like, hey, buddy, because of that, for our flourishing, mine and yours, got to do this. And God, likewise, has given us laws, not so he can be some, you know, angry God, but so that we will flourish as people. So that's what we believe. The Bible, the Bible teaches that. Fourthly, that we have not lived as God has created us to live. Our first parents, we read very on in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They wanted to be like God and make their own laws. They wanted to decide what is good and what is evil themselves. Sound familiar? 
that's what I do, right? Like, I, I, that's me. I love to decide what is good and what is evil myself. And in so doing, they rebelled against God. They wanted to be like God. They said, I know you said this is for my flourishing. I say, no. And in so doing, they plunged the entire world into brokenness so that things aren't as they ought to be. And, and even if you're brand new to all of this, you're like, man, I don't even know what I feel about God or Jesus or whatever. We, f- we feel within ourselves, don't we, some brokenness? We look around us. We, we see broken relationships, broken friendships, broken marriages and communities and countries. And we could go on and on and on and on. Things are not as they should be, and we know it. And the Bible says these things are outward, yes, but also inwardly, right? You ever get so tired you can't think, so hungry you can't process, or you get hangry, right? Or your emotions blind you, right? Things are not as they should be. This, this is in, it's outward brokenness, but also internal. It's, it's our mind, our will, our intellects, our bodies, our sexuality. All of us are broken and bent people. We feel that. And the Bible tells us the reason why that is because we are born into this world as as broken people, that we are rebels who rebel against God, that we're unwilling to worship him as God because we want to be like God. We want to make the rules, and in so doing, we worship created things instead of the creator, God. And so we've rebelled against him. And the Bible teaches us there are none that are innocent of this great sin, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone from to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This is what we believe. This is what the Bible teaches us. And fifthly, that although we deserve nothing but judgment before God, that the God of the Bible has a gracious disposition towards us. He wants to save us from facing the judgment that we rightfully deserve. And that's the overarching storyline of the entire Bible. How the God of the universe, the the creator God of all things, we have rebelled against him, but his great plan is to redeem and restore all that is broken and sad and to make it all untrue. So having those things fresh in our minds, we're gonna turn to John chapter three, verse 16 and 17, and we're gonna see the heart of God for us, firstly this morning, how he longs to restore us and to mend this broken world. So read with me. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the great exchange where, where he is condemned in our place and we get to go free. See, the amazing thing about the God of the Bible is that he makes a way for rebels, you and I, to have a relationship with him. But as we read the Bible, we quickly see this isn't through moral or religious fervor. It's not how many good works that you and I can do, how we can try to please him on our own or fix ourselves or fix this brokenness. No, what we see is God's heart for us in these words that we read, that he, the creator of the universe, specifically God the Son, would lay humanity alongside of his divinity, the way that you put on clothes and stepped out into the world today. God himself put on humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to reveal his love for us, to make himself known, to make it manifest so we could see who is this creator God. 
And not only through that, but, but also through the life of Jesus, we see that supremely God's great love for us when he laid his life down willingly in our place, dying in our place, so that the debt that we have accrued before God the Father would be paid in full. See, God's love is self-sacrificial, as all love must be. I was talking with, uh, with James, running sound earlier, uh, and they just had a baby a month ago. Congratulations. That's so great. And as we were talking about that, he said, yeah, I was like, how's it going? You know, we have two, my wife and I. I'm like, you guys just walked into three? And our kids are about the same age, except for he has a newborn. I'm like, what is that like? And uh, he's like, good. He's like, I mean, you know, other than my wife doesn't sleep much. You know, we're at that really early stages where she's just feeding, taking care of our kid. And, and we've all seen that, where, where love is self-sacrificial. You need not look further than our own relationships to see that. You know, a tired mom feeding her kid multiple times during the middle of the night, self-sacrificial love. And God's love for us is self-sacrificial. He's not a God who stands in the heavens and demands that we measure up. He's a God who comes to us. See, God has made a way for you and I to be forgiven and spared from judgment. And it's through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, who proclaim there's no other way to the Father except through him. So for our time together, we're going to be discussing all about that, and we're going to be looking at the spiritual discipline of, of confession. Specifically, we're going to see three aspects of confession that make it an integral part of our lives as Christians. It's the air that we breathe. And, and I've mentioned all this so far because the first thing I want us to see this morning is that confession is a grace from God through which we enter into a relationship with Him. See, confession is part and parcel of the Christian life of what it means to become a Christian, to start following after Jesus and to believe upon him. For by confessing the fact that we have sin against God is the only ground by which we can now enter into a right relationship with him through Jesus. See, confessing that is evidence that God is at work in our hearts because naturally what we see is that we've all been blinded by Satan from ever seeing the fact that we are rebels against God. So if we see this, that we are broken, we have this brokenness between us and God, it's evidence that God is at work even in our hearts. In fact, to confess our sins is one of the hallmarks of what it even means to become a Christian. Uh, one of the necessary components, we see this in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see an if-then relationship. So we understand that from this, that we cannot be forgiven from our sins or cleansed from our unrighteousness unless we do what? Confess our sins. See, apart from confession, there is no forgiveness before God. Do you see that? Apart from our confession that we are sinners, Believing upon Jesus, there's no forgiveness from God. Unless we've become convinced that we are doomed to face God's unending judgment for our sins against him, then we will never turn to Jesus as Savior because we will not believe that we need to be saved from anything. In this verse, John, John 1, 9, uh, right before it comes verse 8, and right after it comes verse 10. Isn't that great? I know I'm publicly schooled, educated, but, but 8, 9, 10 is how it goes. And what we see, if we look, actually, take a look with me. Verse 8, we see it says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. So if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, and we are calling God a liar, and his word is not in us. But, verse 9, right there in the middle, it's highlighted by these two things. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a great place for us to pause and to consider. Which of these two statements is true of you and of your relationship with God? Are you someone who sees yourself as a sinner before God and who needs a Savior? Or do you not believe that you have sinned against God? Are you in what we just read? Are you in opposition to the God of the Bible? Because, friends, there, there is no middle ground here. See, the Bible is clear that we're either walking in darkness or we are walking in light. Either God is true and his words are true. We're all born sinners who need a savior or else it is a lie. God himself is a liar. See, the hard truths of the Bible begin to converge here. There's really only two camps. Those who've come to believe that they are sinners and that they cannot merit or earn God's forgiveness of them, but they need a savior. And there are those who see all of what we see in person and work of Jesus and his death on the cross and all of that. And they say, well, that's good for people who believe they need a savior, but I am not one of them. See, the hallmark of a true Christian is shame over the things that we have done. And yet in the midst of this, a great confidence, an amazing confidence that Jesus has died in our place, bearing our shame and removing it all together. See, Christians love phrases like this. Jesus died in my place. I love that phrase, in my place. We love calling God my father. See, the hallmark of a Christian is we love these personal pronouns of God, right? He's my God. He's my savior. He's my Jesus. He's my father. We we love this. Our our hearts delight in that love of God of that has been placed in us by God because what they do is they they reveal our brand newfound relationship with God. And if today you feel yourself strangely drawn to confess, indeed, you are a sinner before God and that you need a savior, then you can come and you can believe upon Jesus. Indeed, that that he has not come to condemn you. you. If you feel as if he has come to condemn you, friend, he has not. He has come to save you through his death in your place. God himself has come to die in your place so that you will not have to face judgment for what you have done. What self-sacrificial love is that? How amazing of a love is that? So you can come and confess your need for a savior and profess your belief in Jesus as your God, Savior, and Kings. For what we know is that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So admit that you are a sinner and believe upon Jesus and commit your life to following after him. Come to him now, today. And for those of you who have become Christians already or right now, do you... Do you remember what it was like to hear that gracious offer to come and to confess and to repent and to believe? Do you remember your heart racing, wondering, 
could this really be true? Could I really have a brand new start with God and other people? Do you remember believing upon that that was true and you didn't even know why? You're just like, I believe that that's true. Do you remember confessing your sins and believing upon Jesus and your life is never the same? You see, confession, that's why I said confession is a grace of God, an undeserved and unearned gift that he gives to his kids as evidence that he's at work in you, drawing yourself to him. And he's the one who gives you the faith to believe indeed you're a sinner and that you're in need of a savior. You see, brothers and sisters, we were given eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend that we, you and I, had sinned against God. And by our confession of that with our mouths, we professed our inability to please God on our own, and we professed the perfect spotlessness of Jesus in our place. We profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, and our God, and we believed in our hearts that God rose him from the dead and that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we must be saved. So confession is, first and foremostly, a grace from God through which you and I enter into a relationship with him. This is why confession is so important. That's why when James said, hey, would you like to preach on confession? I'm like, yes, yes, I would. It's integral to who we are as God's people. Freely, we would confess that. I confess that I need a savior. I confess I'm a sinner and that I'm broken. I confess brokenness is outturned. Yes, but internally, I'm deeply broken and flawed. I freely confess that over and over and over and over again. But not only that, we see from God's word that confession is an ongoing gift from God. It's a regular rhythm that we practice before God and walk in as God's people. It is a spiritual discipline through which we grow in our relationship with God. So secondly, confession to God for our sins is a daily rhythm for the Christian. See, it's not that we've confessed our sin in God or, or, or sin before God and we've believed upon Jesus' life and death in our place and then we never sin again. Right? Yes. Okay, that's good. Uh, I'm glad to see I'm not alone in, uh, in this room that uh, others of you who believe upon Jesus, you also realize that you sin. Every day, multiple times a day. Now, see, we constantly sin against God and against others. Our hearts resonate with that. Uh, we, we've heard Christians throughout the millennia explain it in different ways. Uh, one of them said that, that our hearts as humans are idol factories. We create idols, things that are not God. We take good things and make them into God things. And this activity plagues us even as Christians. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, what? You're plagued by that daily? Yes, yes, we are. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. And so daily we confess our need before God and the fact that we are sinners. It's not like this one time long ago, I saw, oh, I was a sinner and I need Jesus. And now, man, life, I'm just, God and I are great. You can ask my wife or my children. Uh, and they'll freely confess to you, I am broken, right? Daily, I'm sinning against them, getting angry for dumb things that don't even make any sense, right? And you are just like me. So when we become Christians, we, this is our daily confession. So we daily confess before God our sins against him and we repent of them. We turn away from them and we daily confess Jesus alone is our only hope. He alone is righteous in our place and we trust in his righteousness. If you, if you recall, if you've been around maybe for, for a couple of weeks, it's, it's why we sing the song, Lord, I come, I confess, 
bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense. You are my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I'm free. Holiness is Christ in me. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you are my hope and stay. See, the Christian life isn't about being perfect before God or trying to tip the scales so that maybe God is more favorable towards us or, oh, well, I'm walking in wisdom, so God's going to be kind towards me or I'm making all the right things and so somehow I'm putting in all the right coins into the divine vending machine of God and I'm going to get out exactly what I want. No, that's not what we see. It's never about us being perfect. It's all about God's law being perfected and fulfilled in Jesus alone. And as Christians, we will have daily, hourly, moment-by-moment need to trust in Jesus' righteousness and not in our own. Our entire lives as Christians is all about confessing our inability to even live this life apart from God the Spirit's enabling and Jesus' perfectness in our place. So as Christians, we enter into the Christian life through confessing that we need a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves, and then we continue all of our days with this exact same confession on our lips that our only plea before God is, Jesus died my soul to save. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, does this mean that Christians won't grow in their relationship with God and turn away or repent from certain behaviors? Should we expect that that we should maybe stay in sort of a spiritual infancy for our entire lives, needing just constant diaper changes and spit up cloths? No, that's not what I'm saying. Babies are born into a family, and then what happens? They grow. I tell my son all the time, he asks for juice or other things. I'm like, no, buddy, water is what will make you grow. Just keep drinking water, and then you'll grow. And I say the same thing about vegetables. I love it. Vegetables and water, buddy. That's what you need. It'll help you grow. So every time he drinks water, he says, I'm getting bigger, Daddy. And I'm like, yes, you are. Uh, right? I love it. And, and as Christians, we grow over time. We, we learn what God loves, and we learn how to live in God's world with him as our king. See, it's the same way that, that my three-year-old, he doesn't do the things any longer that my one-and-a-half-year-old does. Right? If you put both of them in a room, one of them is acting very differently than the other one. Why? Well, my three-year-old has outgrown this behavior. My three-year-old knows that biting someone results in a little fatherly discipline within his dad's kingdom. You know what I mean? Likewise, for the Christian, you and I, as we grow in our relationship with God, there are certain things that we quit doing because we know as our father disciplines us, oh, God doesn't like that. Okay, Right? And we, we grow in that as we read God's word, as we're around God's people, as, as some of our edges are, are rubbed off a little bit, that to walk in these behaviors is really to walk in darkness. And instead, God is calling us as his kids to walk in light. And so the whole Christian life is learning, how do we live underneath God's kingdom with him as our, as our dad, as our father? And how, how does he expect us to live? How do we, how do we walk in that? And, and we grow in that as his kids. 
And, and one of the most refreshing things I ever really came across as in my growth as a Christian was a little diagram that I want to show you. And in this diagram, what we see is there we are at the moment where there was conversion, the moment we were, uh, when we were converted, where God convicted us of our sin and convinced us of the truthfulness of Jesus, and we're given faith to trust in Jesus. And we, as a response to his gracious work, we confess our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus. And then we start the Christian life. That's what that means. And so what is the Christian life like? Well, look with me. The top of the diagram, it says, deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holy. And the bottom says deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. And, and the cross gets a bit larger as you progress kind of throughout the V, not because there's multiple crosses, uh, but the cross just gets bigger. Um, and that's a great picture of what the Christian life is like. See, as we grow in our knowledge, one of God's holiness, who he is, what he requires of us, who our father is, what does it mean to walk in light as we read his word, we'll realize how you and I fall short of that. And, and, and by God's continued grace and through his spirit, what will happen is that you and I will continue to see uh, ourselves as more and more of a sinner because we fall short of God's holiness over and over and over again. And so the cross of Jesus will become more and more important to us throughout our lives as Christians. In fact, we will, we will grow in our affections for what Jesus has done more and more and more year after year as we reflect upon how broken we are and how we need a Savior. Our whole lives will be confession, confessing our sins to God and professing how much we need Jesus. Like in my life, I remember when I was 25, right before I got married, I was living on my own. And I thought God and I were doing pretty well. I wasn't that much of a sinner. And then I got married. And then I'm living day after day with another person. And you know what I realized? I'm way more of a sinner than I ever thought that I possibly was. Ever. Why? Because I have someone now right here with me all the time. And what am I seeing? The, the effects of me rubbing against them. And man, I was blown away that first year of marriage. I'm way more broken than I thought. And I thought I had my junk together. I don't. Right? And then throw a kid into that. All right? We kind of, we had a rhythm. We're like, oh, we're good. Oh, we're pregnant. That's lovely. And then we bring this little baby into our lives. I am more of a sinner than I ever thought I was. There's this other human now that we're interacting with, and we're tired, and we're hungry. And we want to be God and have our little world all nice. And that doesn't happen. Right, so you start seeing all these things. And the older and older that we get, and one of the things I love about talking with older, older believers is, man, I thought that I was a sinner when I was 20. I thought I was a sinner, man, when I was 30. Oh, man, 40? Or one of my friends, 50? Like when you have kids that are uh, late teenagers, man, the way I try to manipulate them, man, my heart, I am messed up. You know, and then you have grandkids. It just never ends. It's just an ongoing, constant, we see more and more so how broken we are and how much we need Jesus. And so Christian, an evidence that you were brought into God's family is through your confession of sin against God and your belief that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. And, and as you continue to go throughout your life confessing your sins before God, daily you will sin against him and you will have fresh reminders of your constant need for Jesus, which humbles us, doesn't it? Oh, it humbles us. And it keeps us dependent on him and not to think better of ourselves than we ought. And I believe that's God's grace and kindness towards us, lest we falsely believe that we only need Jesus in order to enter into the Christian life. 
right? That somehow believing upon Jesus and confessing sins, well, that's the ABCs of Christian, of Christian life, the Christianity. And then we need to mature onto other things. No. We don't graduate from this good news or this daily reminder that we are broken, that we need a Savior. A friend of mine says that the good news of Jesus isn't the diving board that gets us into the pool of the Christian life, but that the good news of Jesus is the pool of the Christian life that we play in and swim in all of our days. That we need this reminder daily. I need this reminder daily. You need this reminder daily as a Christian that you're broken and you need a Savior so that we we proclaim our need for him, worship him properly, and can grow in our lives as his kids. This daily confession. So my Christian brothers and sisters, when you think of your relationship with God, how are you doing? Is it one that is marked daily by confession? Do you confess your sins before God and your need for Jesus daily? Are you reminded of that? Or, or can I ask this? When, when was the last time that you confessed your sin before God? Really specific sins and asked God for forgiveness. When was the last time you reminded yourself that you're only accepted before God because of Jesus? You see, confession is a grace from God through which we enter into the family of God. And confession is a daily rhythm and reminder of our need for Jesus and his righteousness. And then lastly, thirdly, confession is a regular rhythm given to us for our flourishing as God's people. So for us, you and I, confession is a gift of God personally, but also interpersonally, you and I, relationships with other people. I don't know if you've ever thought about confession this way. It seems odd, and yet we see it to be true in our own homes and lives. For example, when someone confesses something to us that they have done, and then they ask for forgiveness, think of the healing that takes place in a relationship. When they freely come to you, wow, I was really, uh, I know I just, I said this to you before you even respond, that, I, that was sinful of me. I, I was angry and I took it out on you and that's not right. I'm sorry for that. Do you forgive me? Right? Think of the healing that comes from that. Think of the healing that we have in our lives when people have confessed things to us, when things are brought to light instead of just swept under the rug and forgotten about, never dealt with. I mean, we all have people in our lives that have sinned against us and, and, and they've given some sort of half-hearted apology. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of sorry I did that. Right? They, they, they have half-hearted apology. It doesn't really own what they've done wrong or how they've sinned against you. And the relationship is just never the same. Right? You have those. It's just never really the same as it was beforehand. And imagine how that relationship would be better if there really was true admittance of what they did wrong. They truly owned it and genuinely asked you for forgiveness. Better yet, what if I did that? What if I, think of the relationships I could have if I genuinely admitted when I was being dumb, confessed that and asked forgiveness, how many relationships I would still have that are okay. And, and yet through my immaturity, and through my lack of wanting to be open and vulnerable that I don't have right now. See, this is why I believe that confessing our sins to one another is a gracious gift that's been given to us by God for our flourishing. You see that? 
See, God gives us this for our, our flourishing. Uh, James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In this portion of the letter, James is explaining there's, there's someone who's sick, and, and through their sickness, the elders of that church, they're there, they're praying for this individual, and some sort of sinfulness came up. It came to light, and it needed to be repented of. So somehow this person's physical sickness and, uh, and what they were walking through was tied to their spiritual sickness, and, and through their confession of sins to one another, to those elders, the person was healed before God, both physically and spiritually. And the point that James is making is that confessing our sins to one another is drastically important for our flourishing, for our flourishing interpersonally and personally. And, and I remember the first time that I realized the importance of, of uh, drastic importance of acknowledging sin in a really direct way, confessing it and then intentionally asking for forgiveness, which really seems like basic humanity, you know what I mean? It seems like, oh, we should all have a class like this in school. I've done wrong. Do you forgive me? Yes, I do. 101. You know what I mean? We're not ever taught that. And it seems like basic humanity, but I wasn't born in a household that did this very well. I was born in a household that just kind of swept whatever happened under the rug. You never really talked about it. You just moved on. You did an activity together. And there's, there's never, hey, I did this wrong. You know what I mean? Maybe you're from a family like that. Maybe not. Maybe your family is perfect but I doubt it. In fact, you could probably spend all afternoon talking about the things, right? You just know you could. See, I wasn't born in a household that did this well. I remember the first time that I genuinely acknowledged sin, I confessed it, I took full ownership, and I genuinely asked for forgiveness. And, and it's so, so there in my mind, and I distinctly remember it because it was just a few short months ago. My wife and I, we were at the marriage conference in April back at the center, and the guy speaking, he said, he said, we as Christians, as God's people, we're really bad at confessing sins to one another. And I said, we are? Like, I didn't, what do, you, what do you mean we're bad at confessing sins to one another? He says, well, we say things like that, like this. Oh, I'm sorry I spoke to you like that. And the other person, what do they respond with? Well, it's okay. And he said, that might sound like a pretty normal way that you and your spouse or your roommate or your family, they confess and they receive forgiveness. He said, the problem with that is that the person being sinned against is saying the words, it's okay, but it's not okay for someone to do that to you or to act that way be to you. That's not okay. Like, right, like we, we should use the phrase, oh, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay, if you accidentally bump into somebody in the lobby, you know? Oh, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay. If someone says something pointed to you to hurt you, or out of pride or anger, they do something, or they try to manipulate you or do something. That, that's not just okay that they did that, he said. And I responded with, whoa. It just blew my mind, because how often is that how my wife and I related to one another? Or even with our kids. I'm sorry that I did that. Oh, it's okay. Instead, he said, what we should do is say, I'm sorry I spoke to you in anger like that. It was wrong of me. You didn't deserve that. Do you forgive me? And the other person should respond with, yes, I forgive you. And in this, it owns what the person did, recognizes that it was intentionally sinful and that it hurt the other person. And it gives the other person the beautiful opportunity to extend forgiveness and to have restoration, which is why confession, I think, leads to flourishing. And I can't begin to tell you how revolutionary that was for our marriage and our relationship with our kids. So that now, hour by hour, this is how we practice confession in the Boswell household, right? Hey, I'm sorry that I did this. It was wrong, and here's why. Do you forgive me? And you wait, and the person says, yes, I forgive you. 
and you hug, kisses, ticklings, uh, and then you move on, right? Restoration. And we pair that with James 5 and other places in God's word. We see that confessing sins is part and parcel of the Christian life and is given for our flourishing because it's not if we're going to sin against one another. You know what I mean? It's not it, well, if I ever sin against you. No, it's, it's when. When am I going to sin against you? And as Christians, we may, be, we may be quick to say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Earlier when you were talking, yep, that's me, man. I'm a sinner. I'll freely admit that. But, for, for me, for example, to sin against you, that's kind of a different matter, isn't it? Like if I somehow in the lobby, I just, I intentionally sin against you in some way. Your first response may be like, who's that guy? That was, I can't believe that he sinned against me. Or somebody in your community group, I can't believe they sinned against me that way. Right, that's how we respond. Well, really, the only reason we know one another is why. That we're broken sinners who need a savior. And yet when someone actually sins against you, I can't believe they would do that. Really? That seems kind of crazy, right? Of course people are going to sin against you. And so what do we do when that happens? What do we do when that happens? See, we're all going to need confession as part of our normal rhythm together if the shore church wants to flourish. If you're committed to seeing the shore church flourish, confession must be part and parcel of what happens. If you don't want to see it flourish, just whatever. Don't confess. But if you want flourishing, if, if you want to feel closer together as a family of God, as a people trying to reach the North Shore, confession must be a normal rhythm for you. Because we collectively need to admit our need for Jesus and his perfect obedience. And as I found, as I've gotten older in my faith, and some of you will feel this on me, I'm, I'm outwardly a little bit less sinful a little bit less than I used to be, right? There, there are outward things that you would immediately recognize that are contrary to God's words. And, and I don't do some of those. But inwardly, inwardly, goodness, I am a wreck. And I, I'm a man who needs to verbalize my internal sinfulness because apart from that, you may not even know how wretched of a man that I am and how much I need Jesus. I didn't know the importance of that until one day I heard my wife, we were talking about sins and those sorts of things in our family. And she, she looked at me in a moment of honesty and genuineness and said, you know, I don't know what you struggle with in sin. I have no idea. Because you internalize everything. I'm the third born. So I was taught like, just keep it all inside, man. Just move on. We've got other fish to fry. All right, so all right, she stays inside, you know? That really messes you up in relationships, you know? So the older that I get, the more I, I realize my, my need to really share what's going on inside of my heart. I, I've been learning that rhythm of confession for my entire Christian life, but I really feel recently I've attained some of those tools to work on it better and better. So when James asked, hey, man, would you like to speak on confession? I was like, oh, man, Sure. Because I'm a wreck at it. I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying. And so I'd love to. Uh, I just laughed. We're all just works in process, right? And I've had so many times, even this week, where I haven't confessed right, which is silly. I'm working on this, thinking of you, praying for you, and I don't confess as I ought to to my wife or my kids. And I'm like, dang, what a hypocrite I am. Man, I need Jesus. And then I just, all right, confess that, confess that. All right, here we go, right? Because this week, if I think about my week, I haven't 
I haven't owned a lot of my actions. I've tried to push things under the rug. I haven't been the first person to say I'm sorry. And I have years of dealing with not confessing rightly that I'm trying to unlearn. But you're, you're probably like me. We have years of bad confession of things to people that we just need to unlearn. And it's a, it's a process, Matt. It takes, it takes some time. But even in my failing and even in your failing, we need to be reminded that our right standing before God doesn't come from the fact that we repent or confess properly and rightly. No, our, our right standing with God doesn't come from that at all. Our right standing before God comes from Jesus's perfect righteousness in our place. So we need to be free as men, as dads, as granddads, to admit that, to admit when we fail, to set this culture in our home of vulnerability and openness, brokenness. I am not, I am not this sinless person. And so I, I confess and I repent. I'm not, I'm not very good at repenting and confessing. It's funny to confess that to a room of people talking about confession, but, but as a spiritual discipline, I can practice it and I can continue practice. And I'm overjoyed, I'm overjoyed that God meets me in my failures and he helps me continue to follow him as I put that spiritual discipline more and more so into practice in my life. And I prayed this spiritual discipline would begin to mark your life as well my Christian brothers and sisters, for what a gracious gift of God I found it to be, how it grows relationships as I confess sin and ask for forgiveness and receive it, what healing that I've experienced and what, what healing I wish could happen in my family if this is really how we responded to one another often. Think about how Thanksgivings and Christmases and birthdays and family gatherings would be radically different if we confessed our sin owned it, repented of it, asked for forgiveness. How would that change the entire room that you may hate walking into because of, oh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, five years ago, last year, man, that was never dealt with. Imagine what flourishing your family would have. Imagine what flourishing our, this church would have. Imagine what flourishing your community group would have. Imagine the number of people would see how you live your life and how you confess things freely to one another and say, that's different. There's something in that that's life-giving. What does that person believe that shapes the way that they see that? And so, sure, church, God has given you this distinct responsibility to relationally, actively, and persistently bring yourselves before him through the spiritual discipline of confession. And we've seen that in order to grow in our relationship with God and to strengthen our faith and walk with God, we have this responsibility to do what God has called us to do. And when we do, we find God's spirit at work in us and our relationship with God will continue to grow in amazing ways. So dear brothers and sisters, be known as a people who are marked by confessing your sin and your need for Jesus's perfectness in your place. Walk through those daily rhythms of confessing your sins before God and trusting upon Jesus alone. And confess your sins to one another so that you will flourish as the people of God on the mission of God of making Jesus known right here on the North Shore. So let's pray together and then we will enter into a time of response. So Father, we know that were it not for your kindness extended to us, 
that we would never see our desperate need for you. We would never believe that we are sinners. We would never believe that we need Jesus' death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. We would never confess our sins to you or to others if left on our own. So, so I pray today that your spirit would do what we cannot do or, or would not do if left to our own. God, we pray that you would convict us of our sin, that you would convince us of the truth of Jesus, and that you would lead us to confess our need for Jesus. Some for the first time, and some as a rhythm of ongoing confession as Christians, whereby we prove our faith and our constant need for Jesus. We love you.